Good morning, everyone. Good to see you on this far too cold morning. Thank you all for braving the weather to get out here. You know, I thought I moved to Texas. I didn't realize it was going to be 15 degrees when I wake up in the morning. We're going to get rolling here because we've got a lot to cover, chapter 11. Just a few little housekeeping things for you. A reminder that we've got bookmarks with schedules for this spring semester, for the rest of Luke. Those bookmarks are available at the tables, at the side door, in the rear door. It's also an opportunity for you to sign up to be on the email list for this class. If you have not received an email from either me or from Susan Kalin about this class, then it is likely you are not on our email list. And so you don't have to be, no worries, except just in case something changes, like the room or something bad happens, um, we'd love to be able to communicate with you. And so if you would sign up, make sure we have your email address so that we can get you on our list. I think that would be great. Now let's say a prayer to open our time together. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this day and we ask that you be with us during this time to make space inside our hearts and minds. Shove away all the things that we can put down so that you may fill us with your spirit. Fill us with that spirit and send us out to these doors today renewed and refreshed that we may do the work you've given us to do, and all to your glory in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now today we are on chapter 11, and chapter 11 is one that has a lot going on again, and I do want to name, just because last week we didn't have as much time on a few sections, are there any burning questions left over from last week? We covered a few kind of good stories. The sending of the 70, yes, we also dealt, though, with the story of the Good Samaritan and the story of Martha and Mary. And so since we didn't have as much time at the end last week as I may have wanted, any questions or thoughts or comments that might get us into the mood? Yes? So what do you think I said last week? Good. That's helpful. So I didn't say that. And so we can... We can clarify. So, she heard that it was not important to pray, which is not exactly what I meant. Um, I didn't say that either. So, prayer is important for us. That is what I want you to hear. That it is not, praying is not in order for God to know something, right? So God is not in the dark if we do not speak aloud our prayers, right? God knows our hearts and minds. So the purpose of prayer is not to somehow let God in on something that he wouldn't know otherwise. The purpose of prayer first, obviously things are multifaceted. The first purpose of prayer, in my opinion, is for us we actually manifest our hopes and dreams, desires and needs, and set our own life priorities based on how we pray. It is a formative experience for us. And so I'll say that in a different way. Having grown up, you know, one of our minor sacraments in the Episcopal Church is confession. 
right? And we were just, we, I wasn't, but our confirmation class was just talking about confession two weeks ago. And confession for most Episcopalians is not something that I think many have ever done individually. Um, now we do corporate confession, right? That's our tradition, is that whenever we do a worship service, we do a corporate confessing moment. And that's nice, better than nothing. But if you have ever confessed individually to a priest, it is an extremely vulnerable and intimate moment. If you actually think about the stuff that you have done that you wish you had not done. Now, for some people, that's relatively simple. I can remember as a kid, I mean, confession was always sort of non-event for me because I, I was really sort of a, an easy kid. I mean, I'd love to think I was somehow bad, but I wasn't. And so, you know, nothing, all I could ever make up was I talked back to my parents or I was mean to my sister, right? I mean, it's sort of normal stuff, right? Um, and so my confessions were sort of simple when I was a child. They did get more complex as I got older. Um, and so I think for all of us, we have done things we wish we hadn't done, made mistakes we wish we hadn't made, right? And we can feel bad about it. And feeling bad is important. Actually admitting in real life to a person that you had done that bad thing is extremely powerful, right? You have to, in other words, you've got to really be sorry in order to confess something to someone that you respect in some way, right? It's very easy for you to be like, gosh, that, I'm sorry. You know, how many times do you tell a child, say you're sorry, and they're like, I'm sorry, you know, and they don't, it doesn't mean much. In a way, I think prayer is a, is sort of a microcosm of that kind of intense vulnerability. It is not God knows that we did something we shouldn't, but yet confessing has power, right? You're not admitting anything that God does not already know, but when you make the choice to say it out loud, there is something inside you that shifts. That is what is most important in that moment. And to me, prayer is the same way. You may think, and we're going to talk about prayers. This is a great dovetail. Prayer is not, God is not somehow hoping that he finds out what's truly going on inside of us. He knows. But love is also the kind of thing that has to be fully reciprocated. If you don't admit your wrong to a friend or a loved one, you can't repair that relationship. And in the same way, if you don't actually admit your desires or your hopes or your thanks to God in prayer, you're not as deeply in the relationship with God as he would want you to be. And so the first effect, maybe it's a good way to say it, the first effect of prayer is on us. It is not a transactional moment. Now, it doesn't mean that it can't, in hindsight, seem to be transactional. We've all likely had something happen where we've prayed for something, hopefully not something dumb. We've prayed for something and it has 
come to pass, right? And I don't mean like your football team won the game sort of thing, right? When I say dumb, that's what I mean. God does not care who wins the football game, okay? Um, however, if we've prayed for healing, something, something real, right? Or perhaps that, you know, a loved one gets an opportunity that would be so great for them um, or repairs a relationship that had been broken or, I mean, something that has some real value to it and that has come to pass, we can, there's nothing wrong with it, thinking that it happened as a result of our prayer. But I think that's a dangerous, that's a slippery slope because if we think that things happen because we prayed, I, we might get a little imbalanced with the way that prayer works. I do think that when we manifest our desires, that there is a tangible effect, right? We, have, we are spirit people. And if we put out there our vulnerability, that changes what goes on around us. Remember when I was talking about free choice, about our ability to say yes or no to God manifests kind of good or evil in the world. I think prayer is that same sort of way. As we pray, I think we positively affect the world around us. So it's not that there is no effect, but I think it's too easy for us to try and take something that is spiritual and put it in earthly context. You know, we get the idea of we put something in, we get something out, right? That transaction, we do that all the time. And if we're not careful, we can begin to think that prayer is transactional, and it really isn't. Prayer is about a relationship. And by speaking it, it doesn't mean, you know, if, if you've ever hurt someone and you go to apologize, you apologizing to them does not somehow reveal you did something wrong most of the time. Most of the time that person knows you did it wrong, right? And they have been mulling over it for a long time. You apologizing simply makes, exposes you and changes you for the good. Have you ever heard someone tell you that apology or forgiveness is not for the other person? You don't forgive someone because they deserve it. You forgive someone because you deserve it, right? You deserve the peace that forgiving someone else gives you. That's why we forgive. Now, if it also means that the relationship is healed, great. But the first purpose of forgiveness is for your peace, which is why if the person is not sorry, forgiving them is still important because it's about your peace in that situation just as much as it is about their relationship. And I've kind of skewed off a little bit, but I think the idea that prayer is not transactional is really the point, and that the first effect is what happens to you when you pray, not what happens to God or whether something happens or not in the world. Does that clarify a little bit? Okay. And keep asking. So I do, I do want to say I, that is exactly what I hope that you will ask in the class because you're not the only person wondering. And so if you're wondering a thing and I have a question or something was not clear or you want to hear it said differently, you're not the only person. And so please do, you know, pipe up and let me know because 
it's always clear in my head. So, <laughs> all right. Any other thoughts or questions based on the last week or two? So it's interesting you say that. So for those of you who can't um, hear that, she chooses to forgive because God commands her to forgive, right? Praise because God commands to pray. Right. I love that. God bless you. Because that's not going to be everyone else's experience in this room, is my guess. I have sat with far too many people who truly want to be a good Christ follower, and man, they cannot forgive someone for that thing, right? Um, I mean, it's forgiveness is, is a big hurdle. It is not easy. And particularly when someone has offended kind of a core value, you know, it's one thing if someone like cuts you off in traffic or something like that, right? I mean, sure, although I don't forgive those people most of the time. Um, <laughs> but, you know, when something really hurts, that's really hard, especially if you think that person should love you. Then you're, I mean, you are in seriously difficult territory. And if you can get to the point where the forgiveness is simply automatic, there is no choice, you just do it, fantastic. There is, there's all, that's all good. I don't think that's most people. Dang, I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to teach that well. Um, well, you know, it's interesting you say that it was very simple because... I, I heard someone say once that theology, we created theology to overcomplicate something that is very simple because if it is truly as simple as it is, we have to do it, right? And that's, this is hard stuff, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's jump in. Chapter 11. We have four sections to this chapter. The first is Lord's Prayer. And Lord's Prayer is, you know, something we all know, but we're going to talk about prayer in general again. You know, we'll say some stuff in the same way. Second part of this is Beelzebul, which is just a great name. Third is the sign of Jonah. Jonah, one of those inconvenient prophets. And then the fourth is denouncing the Pharisees. denouncing the Pharisees. All right, so let's jump in. We're already sort of in this thread with prayer. So in this first part of chapter 11, Jesus offers a prayer that is a catch-all, right? The Lord's Prayer is really a prayer you can say anytime for anything, right? So if you don't know how to pray, or you are uncomfortable praying, or you simply don't know what to pray for, here is something you can use, right? Which is why we say it all the time. And I know for, how many of you grew up using prayer beads? 
of some kind, right? We have Anglican prayer beads, right? And if you were Catholic, you likely had rosaries, right? Prayer beads are very common. Lots of traditions, Christian and non, use beads of some kind in order to pray because for a lot of traditions, there is value in almost losing yourself in prayer, um, becoming almost meditative through the prayers. And if you've ever used beads, if you've never used prayer beads, there are Anglican rosaries, Anglican prayer beads. I think we have some in the bookshop. And so I'd love for you to go and just see what they are, right? They're not exactly, they almost look like little rosaries. I mean, it's sort of what they are. They're shorter rosaries, which probably sums up the difference between Roman Catholics and Episcopalians. <laughs> you know, if we're honest, you know, Catholics like need a really long set of beads and the Episcopalians are like, you know what? That's good, that's good enough. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> and so the prayer beads, they give you just enough, right, to get you in the mood, and that's fine. Those prayer beads kind of help you get into a rhythm where you're almost in a trance. If you've never used them, it's an interesting thing. Maybe this Lent, you would pick up a set and try them out. I, would, I got to the point when I was younger where when you're doing the Our Fathers or you're doing the Hail Marys, really it's the Hail Marys, you kind of just get so fast that you're almost not even thinking of anything else. If you've ever done meditation, it feels like that. Your mind is quieted. You've got just enough in your mind to keep, you, keep your attention, but it's all the rest of the stuff and the noise goes away. And it's kind of powerful. And I think that for Jesus in this moment, he's kind of offering us the structure, the skeleton of a prayer that can be used at any time for whatever we need. So let's talk about prayer structure for just a minute. Those of you who are Episcopalian know that we always use what we call colics, right? We've got colics that are for a certain Sunday of the year or a certain day of the year or certain seasons of the year, you name it, we've got a collect. Colics are just basic prayers and they follow a very simple structure. And if you've never heard this, I think this is very helpful. Someone, at least one someone in this room, will not be comfortable saying a prayer out loud, right? If not many of you. Simple prayers follow really four steps. And those four steps can help you start to perhaps be more comfortable with praying. The first is an invocation. That invocation is where you literally invoke the name of God right? You start off by just saying God, right? Gracious God, our Lord, Heavenly Father, you name it. Whatever it is, you kind of name God, invoke God's name. The second section is a thanksgiving. It's always nice to begin your prayer by saying thank you for something, right? So, dear God, thank you for this day, right? Thank you for the sunshine. Thank you for the cold weather, whatever it is, right? Just say thank you for whatever you have to be thankful for. It gets our mind right. Third section is the petition. Ask for what you want, right? And ask for what you want. Don't be afraid to ask for anything. Like I said earlier, you might try not to ask for things that you don't think God really cares about. Like, I don't know, again, for someone to win a game, right? Um, I just think it's good practice for us to not pray for 
outcomes of sporting events and things like that. It just keeps us centered, I think. But you know what? If you really care, ask. Why not? Um, God won't care, but ask anyway. So you've got invocation, thanksgiving, petition, and then the closing, which is praise. So you've got invocation, thanksgiving, petition, and praise. And somehow in that praise moment, you may also call it the doxology, you sort of name God's goodness or glory, or you can name the Trinity. You know, often you see, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I mean, there's something about that end of there where you're praising God for just, for just being God, right? And that centers us. So you start and end basically with God. You've got your thanksgiving and your petition. If you, next time you're in a worship service, and we, use, we say the collect, you will see it. Boom, 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 boom. That's exactly how they're all structured. Some are a little more of one part or the other, but they've all got those components. As you begin to develop a prayer life, actually what I should say is, if you do not pray, I want to encourage you to try. Prayers do not have to be poems. I think that Episcopalians are often intimidated by praying because our communal prayers are beautiful, right? The poetry of our prayer book is really impressive, and it can also be intimidating. And we can start to think that if we can't structure a prayer that way, then we're somehow not doing it good enough. That is not true. Praying is just a conversation, right? Although structure is nice, structure is also can be an aspiration. Prayer can start off as simply as, hey God, I need your help. Amen. That's a good prayer. And it's remarkable if you've ever had the situation where someone's asked you to pray. So I have the bad habit <clears throat> of whenever I'm in a group, typically asking someone else to pray, just because I'm usually the one praying. And so if I can get someone else to do it, I enjoy hearing them pray because I listen to myself pray a lot. And it's, people are always stunned. It's rare that someone's like, thank you, I'd love to pray, right? People rarely say that. Usually people look at me and say, me, me? Um, if, you've, if you feel that way, then I want to encourage you to start to just try on your own. Just stop in the car, maybe before you start the car, well, not today because it's cold, but before you drive somewhere, you know, try a prayer, 20 seconds. I think what you will find is that it's nothing more than a habit. It's like running or walking or anything else. You can't do it if you don't practice. And praying is just one of those muscles, those spiritual muscles that we have to exercise. And so do try. Pick a season, perhaps, to try and pray. Or one thing I encourage um, my small groups to do is create a list of people and just pray for them by name, right? Just start and say, hey, God, I pray for, boom, 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 amen. That's it. No poetry, no even real petition besides just naming your friends. And once you do that, you realize that you were not struck down. Bad things did not happen because your poetry was improper or poor. In fact, you start to center yourself more. 
and you might start to pray more. And it really does change you from the inside out. Look at that. It's good stuff. How many of you pray every day? That's, uh, you're going to lie. Never mind. I'm not going to ask you that. Um, I'm sure some of you do. And if you don't, maybe you should try. All right. Any thoughts about prayer before we jump on? <laughs> yes. There, there's, a, there's a comic in the clergy bathroom that says, um, staying in bed and yelling, yelling, oh God, is not going to church. Um, so it's interesting to say, you know, do we, do we all pray every day? I, I think that, what do I really want to say? In the, in the metaphorical sense, if you distill prayer down to perhaps its essence, which is a, an expression of our relationship with God, then I think yes. The answer is that we pray every day. I think there can be a higher good to prayer that actually creates an intentional discipline in our lives. That intentional discipline, no, I don't think everyone does that every day. And so maybe that's what I'm, I'm differentiating between what would be just natural expressions of who we are as human people. L let me unpack that just a little bit more. God is real. That's just the case. If you've got friends who don't think God is real, they don't get to decide that. And so now they can think that and, you know, it's not hurting anybody except them, but people thinking God isn't real does not make God unreal, right? God is true. God is real. There's this little sign that you know, I have in my office, you know, bidden or not bidden, God is present, right? I don't care if you think God's here or not. God is here, right? So that is true, which means as human people, we respond to the presence of God. And so even if people are not religious or they are not disciplined or they have no ex, uh, explicit faith life, I do think they respond to God's presence, whether they mean to or not. And so I think that's kind of what you're getting at is, yeah, in that sense, we do all pray every day because we cannot help but respond to God's presence as human people. However, we can take a step up and we can make that a more intentional building block to the life we want if we are disciplined about it. And that's what I would want to encourage you to do is not simply casually express the truth of God's presence, but to begin to almost train yourself to center yourself. You know, we're made to walk, but if we don't practice walking, we will f lose that ability at some point earlier than we would want. And I think that kind of prayer life is in the same way an exercise. You know, we exercise the kind of life that we want when we pray. And so, although in the in the most general sense, we pray every day. I'd love to lift that up and to make it more intentional. Does that sound fair? Okay. Let's go on to Beelzebul. Yay, devil. Um, there was a, 
a group back when I was a youth minister, there were parents who loved to teach the youth to pray and their youth prayer was, um, yay God, boo devil. <laughs> and that was just how they would start youth meetings, which, you know, is charming maybe. I don't know. I didn't like it so much. Um, but I feel like we kind of get this in the first two sections of chapter 11. Yay God, boo devil, right? So we get to Beelzebul. And this passage is kind of strange because it's really, it's dealing with sort of exercising demons, right? Jesus has already in Luke shown that he can cast out demons, right? At this point, the people who want to undermine his credibility are trying to twist his ability to cast out demons into something bad. So what they start to say is, you know, he's obviously not God. So then what is he? And why would he be able to cast out demons? And what they begin to see, to put out there for people, it's like a smear campaign, right? Well, the only person who'd be able to cast out demons would be someone who's really associated with the devil, right? They're like in cahoots in order to fool all of us with their exorcism. That to me, I'm gonna take, I'm gonna go a little off, off script for a second. That's a pretty good argument. I think that that is one of those effective challenges. And I bet a lot of people heard that and thought, yeah, it would make sense that he was in cahoots with the devil, right? And that's why demons listen to him. And I will just go on record as saying Jesus's retort here is weak. He basically says, a house divided cannot stand. Now we like that, right? We say that. It do, that doesn't, that is a true, that is a truth. But in essence, what he says here is, if I was actually acting on behalf of the evil one, then he would be fighting against his own people. That's a, that is a weak argument because it would make total sense that they would be putting on a show where it's not that the devil's actually acting against the demons, it's that they've decided that if it appears as such, then Jesus, who is really evil, is able to garner lots of authority and power over the people around him. Okay, now I've said all that, and let's bring it back down to something that doesn't sound quite so sci-fi, right? So, demons. I have always thought that the idea of evil was real, that evil itself is a real thing, that even though in these stories there might be some metaphorical truth here, that it has always made sense to me that evil is a, is a very real presence and that we often are choosing good or evil in the way that we act. That sounds dramatic and there are mostly small decisions that we make. But occasionally there might be big decisions that we make and we can either choose the good or not. And in this story, I don't want to discount evil 
as something that is just literary. I want us to potentially feel the challenge that evil is a real thing and not just a, a kind of anthropomorphized idea that Jesus is the good and then not Jesus is really the bad, but that bad is a real thing. And I wish I could be more articulate. This is not an elegant argument that I'm making right now. Um, but I think that in this situation, what Luke is trying to get us to see is not necessarily that demons are real or not, because at this point in time, everyone believes they are real, right? There is nobody who would read this passage in history and say, oh, well, there are no such things as demons. There are absolutely things as demons, right? We as a modern people do not get the idea that demons aren't real until sort of the Enlightenment, um, maybe even after that. And so as a modern reader, we have to put down this idea that, well, there are no such things as demons because Luke would have written this for people, every person would have agreed that demons were real. So then in the story, what Luke is doing is pointing to the power that Jesus claims. There is a phrase used in this passage where Jesus says that this is the finger of God. And in that passage, finger of God is a phrase that is not an accident because when Moses was in the Pharaoh's court, he also used the phrase finger of God to show that what he was asking to let the Hebrew people go was indeed God's will. And so Luke uses that phrase to once again point to the authority that Jesus teaches with and acts with. That's the same authority that Moses taught and acted with in Pharaoh's court. I think that the metaphor, perhaps, is that Moses was in the place of earthly power. You might even call it evil trying to save God's people. And in the same way, Jesus is in the court of earthly power. We also might call it evil, trying to save God's people again. And readers in the first century would have made that kind of historic connection. Sorry, that was probably one of the messiest bits of lesson I've ever given. So um, any thoughts or questions to try and make that a bit more clear? Was it so unclear? Can't even ask a question. Yes. So when I say earthly, am I tying that to the evil of the flesh? Okay, worldly. Yes, um, I think for sure. So this, this gets back to the same kind of discussion about um, where does evil come from, right? Well, we said, if it wasn't last week, it was two weeks ago, where we have the free choice. When we choose not to follow Christ, follow God, we are actually opening up to evil powers or influence, and those can multiply over time. So I do think that there is a very, especially Jesus's rhetoric here points to a, 
a kingdom that is not of this world, such that God's truth, God's hope for all of us, is something that does not look like this world. And we are called to help bring about God's kingdom, not to maintain the earthly reality. And so when you say of the flesh, maybe, that has a connotation that I might not intend, um, but I do think of the world. Worldliness is not godliness. And to make that distinction is helpful in this moment because what I think Luke is trying to show is in the same way Moses standing in front of Pharaoh is sort of the dichotomy of God's truth and man's truth or human truth, Jesus is doing the same thing again where he is claiming God's truth in front of all of this human truth and trying to help people see that there is a difference, that it's not, it's not just be more polite or be nicer people. God's truth is something transformative on a cosmic scale and that we are part of that transformation if we want to be. All right, then let's move on to section three. The sign of Jonah. <coughs> Jonah is a very interesting character in the Jewish tradition, just a reminder of Jonah's story. Jonah was called to be a prophet of God. God told Jonah he needed to leave his place and go to a big city called Nineveh and to preach to the people of Nineveh repentance, to turn toward the Lord because they had gotten off track. Jonah did not want to, and so Jonah ran away. Jonah ran away and got on a ship. The ship hit a big storm. The people on the ship figured out that it was because of Jonah, so threw him overboard. He was swallowed by a big fish. The Bible does not say whale, just, you know, for jeopardy reasons. And spit back up out of that fish so that Jonah finally said, okay, I got it. I will go to Nineveh. So then Jonah goes to Nineveh, preaches, walks through Nineveh, preaching repentance, and the people of Nineveh repent and return to the Lord, and they are saved, and Jonah is mad that they listened. That's the whole story, right? And the story ends with Jonah pouting, quite literally, under a tree outside the city. Okay, so Jesus hearkens back to Jonah because the core of that story is God sent a prophet to a city. That prophet preached and the city was transformed. What Jesus is really saying in this passage is that he has been sent to the people to preach repentance again and that they are not listening. So the people of that world, right, whether this is Galilee or this is Jerusalem or you name it, he's really talking about the Jewish people, right, are not listening to God's prophet. They are not turning and repenting like the people of Nineveh, and bad things will happen. So the sign of Jonah, so to speak, is that Jesus has put on that prophetic identity and that the people are hearing this prophetic word the same way that Nineveh did 
And if they do not heed the call, then they will be punished. Jesus will ultimately weep for the people who have not heard that prophetic word and repented. You know, quite physically weep and ultimately die in order to get people to hear. That's it. That's that section. It's not that complicated. Any questions about Jonah? I will say for a moment, the idea of call as followers of Christ is important because we often think that someone is called, not me. And we want very much for someone else to be called. And we will very enthusiastically support other people responding to a call because in a way that makes it not our call. And so one little nugget of today is to consider how God is calling you. It does not have to be like Jonah, and it doesn't have to look like anyone else's call. But do not be mistaken. You are all called to do something, and it's not the same something your entire life right? We're called over and over and over again. When some chapters end, something else is beginning. Doesn't that matter where you are, what you're doing, what you can or cannot do like you used to, you're still being called. We all have something to give. And I think that Jesus as a model of this call is trying to empower us to respond on our own. Being supportive of someone else's call is great. But don't let that make you feel like you are off the hook. That's all for that. Now, last section. I'm actually staying on time today. I'm so excited. Denouncing the Pharisees. Who are the Pharisees? Pharisees are a group of people that we hear referenced a lot in Scripture. And unfortunately, in the Gospels, they tend to be sort of like Jesus's arch villain sort of thing, right? It's often that it's Jesus versus the Pharisees or Jesus versus the Sadducees. And that's unfortunate because the Pharisees were really good people, mostly, right? Pharisees are a sect of Judaism. Like, like any Christian denomination over time, their popularity rises and falls. They happened to be at a peak of popularity around the time Jesus was living. They are not, in Jewish history, perhaps the most popular Jewish group of all time, right? If you were to ask your friends who are Jewish, you know, do you know any Pharisees, right? Um, no, is the answer. Uh, because the Pharisees were, they don't exist now, right? This is, they're not like um, Hasidic Jews or something like that, and they're in some random country somewhere. The Pharisees really were a group of Jews who held up the law as the ultimate good, right? We all in some way decide what is the ultimate good for our lives, right? And if you think about Christian denominations, broadly speaking, 
obviously every community is unique, but in a, at a, the highest level, each denomination sort of holds up an ultimate good, right? And that ultimate good motivates them very much. For Episcopalians, I think our ultimate good, you could sort of argue two things. I would say that our ultimate good is praying. You know, we are a people that believe that we are formed and shaped by how we pray, which is why for us, liturgy and consistency of liturgy and the regularity of liturgy is so important because we believe that that is what gives us the whole foundation of how we follow Jesus, right? Now, for people who are perhaps not raised Episcopalian, that may not make a lot of sense because they were formed with the foundation that might be a different higher good. When people, did you know, of all the major denominations, Episcopalians have just about the worst retention rate. However, we have, by some arguments, especially proportionally, the highest conversion rates, which is very interesting. So for some reason, it's very common that we do not hold on to the people raised in our tradition, but we almost more than any other denomination receive the converts from other traditions. You could say a lot about why, but it is because of that, I would venture a guess that a very large portion of those of us in this room were not born and raised in the Episcopal Church, right? Quick show of hands. How many of you were actually born in the Episcopal Church? And then how many were not? It's at least 50-50, although it looks like it may be 60-40 people not born in the Episcopal Church. That's pretty normal. Um, there is something attractive about grounding ourselves in corporate expressions of prayer. Um, if for no other reason than it makes it, it's not about us, right? In other traditions, it feels very personal. And for some people, that feels great. They want it to be about them. But for, I think, for us, we almost hold up the group over the individual, and we, which is why we have corporate confession, right? That's what we do, not individual confession, right? There is this sense that we do it together, and when we do it together, we are better for it, which is one of the other reasons why the Episcopal Church has not split, because we do not just go form new denominations when we disagree with each other about something. Instead, we hold together. Now, the whispering is somebody, people can leave the Episcopal Church and they can think they're starting something new, but they're not. We, as a, we as a church, Anglican Christians, have one branch and that's the Episcopal Church in this country. That's it. Friends of yours who might think they are doing something else are trying very hard to validate another branch but they have not yet. And they really won't anytime, if ever, because that is at fundamentally not what we do. 
we do not split because it is not about there is a fallacy in thinking we will agree about everything if we think we will we failed from the start we will never agree about everything the higher good is that we stick together other denominations have different higher goods and we can probably all in our own experience sort of name what the higher goods are for other denominations in the same way the pharisees highest good was the law and so in this passage of luke what jesus is really trying to lift up is not a law is good or bad that's not the argument what he's really trying to get at is what is the highest good i want to say that a different way the law is not bad jesus does not think law is bad Jesus definitely thinks law is not, nor should it be, the highest good. It can help us, right? We are human people. Parameters and boundaries and expectations are all a good thing, but only when used to achieve a higher good. And that highest good really is the grace and the peace that Jesus manifests. That's a complicated idea because up to now, the Jewish tradition of God's relationship to humanity was not grace, right? Grace is, a, is something that Jesus really brings with him. Does not mean grace was not there. It just means that it was not perhaps the center of what it meant to be a child of God. And that's really what Jesus reorders here. The law becomes secondary. The law becomes a helpful way for us to live a life of grace and love and peace. And we see that when Jesus gets down to the very end and he talks about getting to his point, to his purpose, which is ultimately Jerusalem. You know, Jesus, I think we said in chapter 9, Jesus made this turn toward Jerusalem. There was an acceptance that what will ultimately happen, we know this story, right? What will ultimately happen with his death is now the purpose of his life. And in this passage, he is beginning to turn the crystal of what it means to live a life of grace and he will manifest that grace by being willing himself to die. Okay, thoughts or questions about that? I can talk more about the Pharisees if you want me to, but... Yes, I see a theme arising. We're going to talk about prayer a lot in here, aren't we? So, question is, if prayer is first for us, then what's the point? right? Well, so let's look at that specifically. We'll do it this two ways. The first is, what does Jesus say about prayer? You just said it. Right. Persevere, right? Ask, ask, ask. I think that's the most important thing, is that we ask. Jesus does not say that you're going to get every single thing you want. But Jesus does say you should ask for it. And so if we want to talk about 
the function of prayer, it could be as simple as because Jesus told us to. So why do we do it? Because Jesus said. I mean, that's as good an answer as any. I think we can try to understand it more than that. And so if it's about us, so as a clergy person or as any person, when you pray for someone, what is it doing in you to pray for them? Let me put it a different way. If I know somebody has cancer and they're undergoing treatment and I pray for them, I am not pray, I do not think that because I said that prayer, now their cancer will be healed. Could that happen? Of course their cancer could be healed. And would my prayer have impacted that in some way? I think absolutely yes. But the number one reason why I pray for that person who is in treatment with cancer is so that I am focusing on them. I want to make sure that my heart is turned toward them so that the next time I see them, I am immediately much faster. I am aware and available to show them love in a very specific way than just anyone else, right? If I see you and I know something's going on with you that is hard, if I know my reaction to you is going to be far faster and much more loving than if I just happen upon you at City Cafe. You know, if, if I haven't been praying for you and something going on in your life, then when I see you, it's going to be like, hey, you know, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But if I know that there's something going on and you have shared that with me, I want to check in with you and I want you to know that I have been thinking about that. I have been praying that. And it's not the transactional thing, right? Why I pray for you is because I love you. If that also means that in some way I push the needle toward your healing, great. But that's not the first reason I'm doing it. The first reason I'm doing it is because of my love. And I think that that centers us to be more loving first. We don't really do anything for one reason only. Maybe I can say it that way. We are complex people, and there are always many reasons for anything we do. Just because I think, and this is just me, all right? It's not like I know something you don't know. I'm just telling you what I think. I think for me, the first, the first thing we get when we pray is a benefit to us. Doesn't mean that all the other things aren't true too, but I think it, what is dangerous is when we think that God answers or does not answer our prayers based on what we asked. That's when it gets dangerous. How many people have had something really hard happen? I mean, I don't know how many times people have said to me, I prayed to be healed and I was not. What, what have I done? What am I not doing right? Why doesn't God want to heal me? That's bad. That's bad theology. It's normal, super normal. I mean, almost universal, right? I mean, almost everyone is in that situation. That's what I want us to resist 
when we are not in crisis, if we can begin to change the way that we actually do things like pray, then once we are, are in crisis, we never think to ourselves, my cancer was not healed, God must not care or love me, or I did something wrong to deserve this. That is not how that works. And it's important for us now, outside of crisis, to begin to reshape the way we think so that once we are in it, we don't kind of slip down that slope because it's painful to sit with someone who thinks that God, that they've done something wrong and therefore their child is addicted or they've done something wrong and therefore their parent died or I, no, that's not how that works. God is not vengeful. God does not wait for you to trip up and then strike someone in order to hurt you. My gosh, no, that is not how this works. And I think that praying can turn us toward what would be a, a better understanding of how God relates to us. That's what I mean by, it's not a selfish thing necessarily, but it is changing us every time we do it. Yes, no, what do you think? Okay. All right, time's up, and I thought I had extra time. Thank you all very much. Hope you all have a good week, stay warm, and I'll see you next week.